Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. The show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started. And hi, everybody. Here at the high school at JPL and everywhere around the world, we're making history right now. We're making history right here. Today, we are naming a spacecraft that will go to Mars and make measurements we've never made before. It will be the first leg of the first round trip of humanity to Mars, bringing back these samples that tell us secrets about life itself. And the name of this mission is... Perseverance! Curiosity, insight, spirit, opportunity, If you think about it, all of these names of past Mars rovers are qualities we possess as humans. We are always curious and seek opportunity. We have the spirit and insight to explore the moon, Mars, and beyond. But if rovers are to be the qualities of us as a race, we miss the most important thing, perseverance. We as humans evolved as creatures who could learn to adapt to any situation, no matter how harsh. We are a species of explorers, and we will meet many setbacks on the way to Mars. However, we can persevere. We, not as a nation, but as humans, will not give up. The human race will always persevere into the future. My name is Alexander Mather, and that's why I chose Perseverance as the name of NASA's next Mars rover. I don't really think that there is a word in any human language that can describe the feeling of having your name selected to be part of a mission from the greatest agency in the world doing the most important things to help humanity spread to the stars. I am 13 years old and I did not expect that I would be making any form of impact on human space exploration like this until I was at least out of college or maybe in an internship. And here I am, and I just named a rover. Something I submitted was chosen by people who one day I planned to work with and and that's incredible. 
To me, perseverance means that in the inevitable setbacks that we're going to face on the main way to Mars, humans won't give up. Humans will keep on sending new missions, humans will keep on improving technologies, and humans will eventually live on other places throughout the solar system, and maybe even beyond. And that's just so important for all of our futures. That was Alexander Mather, a seventh grader from Burke, Virginia, who won a nationwide student contest last year to name the next robotic rover to be sent to Mars. His essay was one of 28,000 submissions, and you just heard the announcement made by NASA and Alexander reading his own submission. Now let's hear from Bench Talk team member Professor J. Scott Miller to fill us in on this mission. The timing is perfect because liftoff of this rover from Cape Canaveral is currently slated for this Thursday, July 30th at 7.50 a.m. Eastern Time. You can watch the liftoff at mars.nasa.gov or if you have any kind of cable TV, satellite TV, just search for the NASA TV channel, that's typically part of your television package, and watch the liftoff there, weather permitting. Scott here. Later this month, beginning with a launch window no earlier than July 22nd, NASA will again be launching a spacecraft to the planet Mars. The name of the craft is Perseverance, appropriate if one thinks about it because Mars is one of the most explored bodies in our solar system. In addition, it is the only planet where rovers have been sent to roam the surface, providing imagery and science results that have been built upon with each successive mission. Why Mars? Mars has been the target of much speculation among scientists and science fiction writers alike. In the late 19th century, the resolution of telescopes had improved enough that attempts could be made to look for surface features on Mars. Dark patches were seen to offset the otherwise rusty orange hue. But the astronomer Giovanni Scaparelli reported seeing canali, as he called them, on the surface. These would later be shown to be optical illusions, but the announcement drove the Mars fever that manifests itself into a host of literature and cinema that speculates about Mars as another life-bearing world here in our solar system. The fourth planet from the Sun, Mars is a dusty, cold desert world with a thin atmosphere, primarily made of carbon dioxide. The air pressure on the surface approaches 100th the air pressure we experience here, which is likely one reason that liquid water cannot be found consistently on its surface, though there is evidence of past flooding on its surface and perhaps leakages from its interior, perhaps. This dynamic planet has seasons, just like we do. In good telescopes, polar ice caps, global sandstorms, and sometimes weather can be observed. Orbital spacecraft have revealed canyons and extinct volcanoes on its surface, evidence that it once had an even more active pass. Currently, there are three active NASA spacecraft in orbit around Mars, in addition to contributions from India and the European Space Agency. On the surface are two active NASA craft, a lander known as InSight and a rover known as Curiosity. InSight is the first mission dedicated to looking deep beneath the Martian surface. Among its science tools are a seismometer for detecting quakes, sensors for gauging wind and air pressure, a magnetometer, and a heat flow probe designed to take the planet's temperature. 
Curiosity is probably better known, having operated successfully since it landed in August 2012. Taxed with investigating the Martian climate and geology, it has more than helped scientists learn about the Red Planet since its arrival, performing well enough to have its mission extended indefinitely. Most recently, panoramic views of its current location were released to the public. These can be seen on the NASA website for Mars, mars.nasa.gov. And this brings us to Perseverance and its mission. Its objectives are to explore the diverse geology of its landing site, collect soil samples and do experiments on them that will determine the habitability of that site, specifically looking for signs of ancient microbial life. Some of the samples it gathers will be put aside for a later return to Earth. In addition, it will demonstrate technology to further robotic and, one day, human explorations on the surface. Quite a tall order. Of course, step one is the launch. As we have seen recently with the SpaceX launch of astronauts to the International Space Station, weather as well as other factors can play a role in the actual launch date and time. For this mission, launch windows become available pretty much to the end of August. But those who have worked on this mission and hope to learn from the findings are anxious to get the show underway. Its planned mission is to spend about one Martian year, or the equivalent of about two Earth years, exploring the landing site region. I hope to have much more to say about this latest mission next year. DNA analysis is in the news again, this time having to do with the animal DNA that could be extracted from leather, which of course is made from animal hides. Now the leather we're talking about here are the Dead Sea Scrolls, some 25,000 fragments called parchments that were discovered in caves in the West Bank back in the 1940s and 1950s. The West Bank, of course, is that contentious land to the west of the Dead Sea between Israel and Jordan, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are thought to have been written sometime between 150 B.C. and 70 A.D., which is a crucial time in the development of Judaism and in the emergence of Christianity. The scrolls were mostly written in the Hebrew language, with some of them being written in Aramaic, and scholars think that the documents were hidden in these various isolated caves in what's now called the West Bank around 70 AD as a way of protecting them from the Romans who were about to destroy the Second Temple located in Jerusalem. These scrolls are currently mostly housed in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, although I should tell you that both Jordan and the Palestinians are claiming rightful ownership of these truly mysterious scrolls. Now, 80% of the documents were written on either sheepskin or cowskin. Only about 20% of the scrolls were actually written on paper, and paper at that time was made from the papyrus plant. 
So the vast majority of these Dead Sea Scrolls were written on leather. These 25,000 different fragments have been pieced together to form about 1,000 individual manuscripts, and these include some of the earliest known books of the Hebrew Bible, which of course is also the original source of the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. The largest set of Dead Sea Scrolls come from these 11 caves located in Qumran, which is an archaeological site about a mile from the Dead Sea and near the Israeli settlement of Kela. Today I want to tell you about a research paper about this that was published in the June 11, 2020 issue of the journal Cell. And it was actually the cover article of the cell issue. And so if you want to see the article yourself, go to our Facebook page. I'll post it there. This group of researchers, mostly from Tel Aviv University, worked for some seven years on this project. They extracted DNA from 26 different fragments of Dead Sea Scrolls that were collected at Qumran. 24 of them were sheepskin and only two of them were cowskin scrolls. They isolated DNA from these skins and cloned it into genomic libraries and then determined the DNA sequences of each of those clones so that they could compare the different fragments of skin to each other. This was not an easy process because the DNA must have been in very poor shape after being processed from the animal skin and after 2,000 years of aging in caves located out in the harsh desert but they did seem to get it to work. Another challenge to this project was distinguishing between different animals of the same species, as well as distinguishing between one species or the other. Sheep and goats, for instance, have very similar genetic makeup, so this was a bit of a challenge. And to help with that process, the researchers also studied the mitochondrial DNA in these leather scrolls, Mitochondria are the organelles inside of our cells that provide most of the chemical energy that we need to live. But they do contain small circular molecules of inherited material, DNA, and because of their small size and their circularity, the mitochondrial DNA does withstand degradation better than large chromosomal DNA does. So that's why they looked at mitochondrial DNA too. The assumption they made here was that any two leather parchments that had the same DNA sequence were probably from the same animal, and thus were probably from the same document. Now, there are other ways that archaeologists can try to piece together these scroll fragments, and that's by looking at handwriting styles and the spellings of words. Researchers have concluded in the past that this kind of analysis, looking at handwriting and spelling and things like that, indicates that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by a relatively small number of scribes. And so this makes the piecing together of thousands of different fragments into these only 1,000 documents really challenging. And it opens up the opportunity for mixing two different stories together. But DNA analysis might make that process easier. If two pieces come from the same individual animal hide, they were probably part of the same story. For instance, researchers looked at two different versions of the Hebrew Bible's book of Jeremiah and found that one version was written on sheepskin, but the other version was written on cowskin. This was really a surprise because before that, experts had thought that these two fragments belonged together, that they were part of the same document, 
But then DNA analysis indicated that these two fragments were probably written separately from one another. So this means that that original book of Jeremiah might have been a hybrid of two different versions, artificially put together. And finding one parchment that was made from cow skin really throws a wrench into the interpretations because cows were probably not even raised near Qumran at that time. Cattle requires a lot of grass to eat and a lot of water to drink, and this region probably had neither of those things at that time. So either those parchments were written somewhere else and brought to Qumran, or the leather, at least, was imported from somewhere else. It just raises a lot of questions. They found three different copies of texts from writings called Song of the Sabbath Sacrifice, now, two of them were from the Qumran caves, and they were written on sheepskin that was from genetically related sheep. But the third version of Song of the Sabbath Sacrifice was found in Masada, which was 34 miles away, and that was written on leather from a different line of sheep. Up until now, many scholars assume that someone from Qumran brought the manuscript from Qumran to Masada, but now, since the Masada scroll seems to be written on parchment from a different line of sheep, it's assumed that it was written there in Masada instead of Qumran. Apparently, these two versions of the Sabbath sacrifice song are really very similar, though, and that's also important because that indicates that there was some cultural coalescence around this story across a relatively large region. It's the same story written in two different places. Another of the challenges for scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that some of these scrolls were collected by local sheep herders and given first to antiquity dealers, and then from there were given to experts to actually study. So information about where the scrolls were actually collected is pretty unreliable. It's sort of word of mouth. There was one case of a scroll parchment containing part of the book of Isaiah, it was originally thought that this parchment was from the Qumran collection, but DNA analysis indicated it wasn't. This research paper is important because it does address one major controversy about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's about whether or not the Dead Sea Scrolls reflect the views of the entire Jewish culture of the area at that time. Or were they primarily written by only one of four Jewish groups living in the region then, they were called the Essenes. So do the scrolls depict the majority view or just the perspective of the Essenes? The authors of this paper suggest that perhaps it's the former, not the latter. The scrolls don't represent just a narrow point of view of just one small group of people. They might truly reflect the broad culture of that period. This research really contributes to what was previously thought and debated about these mysterious writings. It's helped piece together the proper fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's helped describe when, where, and by whom the scrolls might have been originally written, and how well they represent the culture and religion of Jewish society at that time. I think it would be fascinating to apply these same techniques to leather artifacts collected at archaeological sites from other parts of the world, and I'm predicting we'll see more DNA analysis of ancient leather goods in the future. After all, it's harder to know where we want to go as a species if we don't know much about where we've already been.
And now let's hear from another Bench Talk team member, John Dixon. He has a commentary called A Walk in the Park. Hi, John Dixon here again. And today I'm going to be talking about how we are all scientists. And today we're going to be talking about this in the frame of a little bit of environmentalism, some observations in nature, and building a stronger community together. As we spend more time social distancing while craving interaction, one of my most important interactions is that with nature. I love walking to and through many of Louisville's parks, though Cherokee Park is certainly a favorite of mine. And when I go, I try to take a bag along. Any old shopping bag will do, but it never seems to come home with me. Because I like to take in the sights and sounds of the world around me, And a good way to slow down my pace and be environmentally conscious is to pick up at least a small amount of litter. I don't feel like I spent my whole journey through the paths and trees was spent collecting litter, but hopefully I helped the wildlife a little bit, maybe even set an example for those around me. And of course, with the dangers of COVID-19, I might recommend using a grabber or finding a nice stick to be a poker to pick up litter with, and use hand sanitizer to stay safe afterwards. Now, environmentalism isn't only dependent on a small number of people being perfect for the environment, as much as it is that everyone just tries to do a little bit better. Another benefit of slowing down and letting your gaze drift to the edges of the path are things you might start noticing that didn't stick out before. Shiny little salamanders covered in specks of fantastic colors. Frogs and flowers just out of sight to the uncaring eye. They have all filled me with insight as to how beautiful our local ecosystems can be. Now in college, biology was one of the major disciplines of science that I didn't have a chance to study. Electrical engineering tends not to concern itself with memorizing the genus and species, the names of the creatures I encounter, Nor was my coursework too keen on spending time studying the adaptations made by animals in our environments. I bring this point up to emphasize that expertise is not required to consider the wildlife encountered all around us as beautiful. In fact, we can come together as a community by learning with each other and teaching each other. So, make observations with those around you, because experiences like these help us to build a community. There have been numerous encounters in my life where I've had beautifully meaningful interactions with people I might not have even noticed otherwise. This spring, I sat in my backyard quite often watching the birds in my neighborhood claim their territories and mates, and when a feathered friend landed on my fence post one day, I didn't know what kind of bird it might be, but I liked its call and I tried to mimic the sound back, and either my attempt was so bad as to cause offense or close enough to upset him, and he immediately puffed up his chest feathers and left a rather foul mess on my fence post before setting off. From across the fence, my neighbor certainly did get a laugh out of that encounter. Now this neighbor has many lush trees that give home to many of the birds that I've become fascinated watching. At the beginning of quarantine, upon noticing my gaze at the treetops, he mentioned something to the line of his appreciation of the trees, which I shared. I replied to him as well with an observation about how much joy I got watching the back and forth battles between the squirrels and the birds, and I think it kind of accentuated the beauty of those trees. As quarantine went on and the need for entertainment continued, we created backstories for the different birds, giving them names and even discussing their aspirations. 
Is that scientific? No. Silly? Absolutely. Building our fictional bird world still helped us in many ways, so I guess I'll have to conclude that I still can't call myself an ornithologist, though I now have a neighborhood of bird watchers and a newfound appreciation of nature. And a very kind community member near me has a beautiful front garden filled with flowers that bloom at different times from each other so that it's always lush and abuzz with bees getting sustenance. At one point, I walked by as the garden was being tended to, and made it a point to thank her for tending to all the plants. Gardening's hard work, and I am not known for my green thumb. Anyways, her response to my simple statement of gratitude was so genuine that I felt comfortable asking for a few pointers. I often forget how happy it makes experts and impassioned environmentalists when they get to share their knowledge. So in your community, feel free to share knowledge with each other about whatever your passions are, as well as to listen and be curious to others. Asking questions, making observations, and working together are the basic building blocks of science. I guess you could say that being a scientist can be as simple as taking a walk in the park. that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.